It's been a year since COVID-19 brought our country to its knees, and over 530,000 people have lost their lives. President Biden signs the historic $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package into law, ensuring childhood tax credits and $1,400 stimulus checks. And the president announced that every adult would be eligible for a COVID-19 vaccine by May 1st. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. And this has been the longest year of my life. Do you remember where you were this time last year, that week before lockdown? Things felt normal. The sun was just starting to peek out from a long, dry winter. There was an excitement in the air. But a bigger, more ominous looming threat was in the air, too. Something that was increasingly being referred to as the novel coronavirus back then. I remember reading about this strange new flu-like illness that was spreading in Wuhan, China in December of 2019. But the threat didn't really hit until those last few weeks of February, when I started to appreciate that this was going to be the big one I'd always heard about in med school. And yet, as late as March 8th, I was on the campaign trail with Bernie Sanders. In one of the last things I did before lockdown, I got to speak in front of a rally in my hometown of Ann Arbor, packed with 10,000 people there to see AOC and Bernie. I was planning to launch my first book during those days, Healing Politics, which came out on March 31st. We had a 39-stop book tour planned, with stops all over the country. It was not to be. But only a week later, on March 13th, we launched this season of America Dissected, focused entirely on coronavirus. We've been going ever since. And as people were trying to figure out what was about to happen, Sarah and I moved in with my in-laws. Emily was then two years old, and her daycare had just shut down. The only way Sarah and I could work was with the support of my mother-in-law, who graciously took care of Emily, while Sarah and I worked at side-by-side desks in their basement. That week, to take my mind off the blur, I picked up Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, where he argued that the most dangerous part of the Trump presidency wouldn't be the things we saw, but the myriad things we didn't see. Pieces of the American government machinery that we don't always pay attention to, but are critical for our safety and security. Public health is one of those things. As an epidemiologist and former health commissioner, I know that public health is as much about preparation as it is response. And we were not prepared. Watching the Trump administration's buffoonery at the outset of the pandemic was like watching a high-speed crash in agonizingly slow motion. Nearly everything they did, they did absolutely wrong. From denying the pandemic to politicizing masks to getting ahead of the science. It's been a year. And though the man who got us into this high-speed crash is no longer behind the wheel, we are still facing the consequences. We've lost over 530,000 mothers, sisters, brothers, daughters, sons, cousins, and friends. Millions more survived, but we'll never forget. Millions more than them have lost their livelihoods and have spent the last year on the teetering edge of poverty if they haven't already been engulfed by it. Structural racism has tag-teamed with the virus to leave black and brown communities even sicker and poorer than they already were even as billionaires made a collective trillion dollars, the biggest winners of the so-called K-shaped recovery. This pandemic taught us that it takes more than money to weather a storm. It takes collective trust, will, and purpose. The living manifestation of our mistrust was then the president of the United States. That meant that for most of the past year, Americans suffered this pandemic five times worse in terms of death than the rest of the world. Meanwhile, our broken infrastructures, riven by racism, inequity, and insecurity, filled further and further as COVID-19 put an unprecedented strain on already crumbling systems. But that's been the last year. And this 
This was last Thursday. Well, this historic legislation is about rebuilding the backbone of this country and giving people in this nation, working people, middle class folks, uh, people who built the country a fighting chance. The contrast with Trump and his ideology of zero-sum racism and division couldn't be more stark. It's hard, even painful, to reflect on what might have been had we had that kind of leadership from the jump. Last week, President Biden signed a $1.9 trillion, that's $1,900 billion, COVID relief package into law. It provides major support for direct COVID-19 relief, including vaccine deployment, school reopening, and state and local funds to replenish coffers that had run dry because of COVID. It provides subsidies for health insurance for people who lost their health care or are priced out. Most directly, it offers $1,400 checks to most families. Of course, there's still a lot more I wish the bill would have included, more money for families, and raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Nevertheless, as Joe Biden put it, the package has the potential to be a big effing deal. It sets us a pace to put a final end to this pandemic in the U.S. And yet, let's not forget that this was a global pandemic. In that respect, folks were asking if Joe Biden had what it took to meet this moment with a Rooseveltian response like the New Deal. Last Thursday, Biden and Democrats answered with a resounding yes. But we could and should do more. Roosevelt took on the Great Depression with the New Deal, and then he led America through World War II. The New Deal is what made American leadership in World War II even possible. FDR saved America and then led America to save the rest of the world. And if this bill rescues America, it doesn't quite rescue the rest of the world. Today, we talk to Dr. Joya Mukherjee, Chief Medical Officer at Partners in Health, a global NGO that has been critical to delivering COVID services and relief, not just abroad, but here at home. She talks to us about what it takes to save the world after the break. Our guest today is Dr. Joy Mukherjee. She is the chief medical officer at Partners in Health and someone who has been focused on equity when it comes to this pandemic whether it is in the United States or globally. Dr. Mukherjee, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with us today. Thanks, Abdul. Honored to have you and, and grateful for your work. The pandemic has really, frankly, reshaped the thinking about how we think about resources uh, and health and disease, or at least it should have. Um, and in some respects, right, the, the U.S. bore this pandemic worse than any other country in the world, except for maybe Brazil. What does this tell us about the role uh, of more than just money in shaping who gets sick and who doesn't? What are the other resources at play that we may have been missing uh, in the global health equation? Yeah, so that's such a great question. And I'm sure that all of us as public health people and medical people will be writing this history for many years to come. And we'll find out a lot of things that we don't know yet. But what we do know is that despite the greatest expenditure per capita in the world, the United States does not have the best health outcomes. And that is because of at least two things. Uh, one is very obvious, I think, to anyone, which is the massive inequalities um, in the, as we call, the social determinants of health. So policies of racism, redline, redlining, the poor uh, quality of infrastructure in inner cities, and all of this, which are driven by policies of racialized capital, are really seen in health outcomes. And so um, that's just 
we see that this inequality is one of the reasons that we are just so totally unprepared. But the second thing that I've really come to realize in my work in the U.S. since COVID hit is that we don't have a health system, right? We have a system of care that will maybe treat you if you're sick, if you're insured, but really doesn't try to keep you well. Really, primary care clinics have little or no connection to hospitals, and neither has a connection to what's happening in the community. And in countries all over the world where I've worked, you see this connection between community, health center, and hospital, and the system of care is there to do case investigation, contact tracing, resourcing the sick, the poor, and having a system that makes sense. And I think what's been really shocking to me is to see the fragmentation. So you've got a system that's very fragmented and a society that's deeply unequal. And I think responding to pandemics in that setting is extremely challenging. Mm. You know, what's fascinating is that um, uh, I was talking to a friend and trying to explain something similar. And the, the only metaphor I could come up with is of a sandwich. And if you've ever had a sandwich, you kind of want some good bun in that sandwich, right? You can't just have all the meat. And our healthcare system has nothing except for the meat in the middle, which is that healthcare part of it, but none of the actual prevention, none of the integration, none of the thought about what happens before you ever get sick or after you get sick and um, you know get discharged from a hospital. And, and, and without that, right, we have we have fallen into the situation where you know we, we come up with this medical marvel of a vaccine that uh, we can't figure out how to deploy with any degree of uh, accuracy, equity, uh, or efficiency because we don't have the rest of the sandwich. And one of the bigger failings, I think, is our failure to connect dots between what's happening globally and what happens in the U.S. There's a big effort, of course, to vaccinate everybody in the United States. And because we're the richest, most powerful country in the world, we command a tremendous level of power when it comes to who gets vaccines and when. And, you know, we're failing to do that equitably in the United States, but we're certainly failing to think about how we vaccinate everyone. And where the rubber hits the road on this is that every warm body that remains unvaccinated is a opportunity for the virus to take on a a set of uh, evolutionary capacities that makes it resistance to vaccines at large. Can you speak to why we still don't have a plan to vaccinate all 7.8 billion people in the world and what it would take for us to do that thing if we decided we wanted to? All it would take is money. Um, It really is not a complicated thing. And we know that for a fact because when the movement for HIV treatment access swept across the globe in 2000, 99, when we had had highly active antiretroviral therapy in the, in the US and Europe since 1996, so four years of zero treatment in places you know, like Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of, of Asia, lots of Latin America, We know that once we had the money, we were able to do it. And today, 27 million people are on treatment. They're getting that treatment through the public sector. And that money has gone to build good health systems, not perfect. And there's a long way to go. But no one thought we could do that either. Patents, it's too hard to make it. The transfer of technology, only we, American companies, um, big pharma can do it. And we learned that to be totally wrong. 
And now the same excuses are being made to protect the profits of pharmaceutical companies, which is it's complicated, it's mRNA, it's different. But billions of vaccines are made every year in other countries to vaccinate kids against measles and polio. And we can do that. So all we'd have to do is have the will to train and tool up these massive factories to make this new new vaccine and make billions of doses of it. And what it would cost, I mean, Public Citizen has estimated that it would cost somewhere around $25 billion to do that. This is chump change right? That's a week of our, you know, war machine. And so it's just a political decision that we're making to protect private profit over the public health um, and to protect, you know, what we consider to be American security, which in, you know, to be clear, I think for many young people who've grown up in the never ending war, you know, there is no guarantee of our security based on how we've constructed the world today. I mean, when I was a young person, we were far more secure. And that was in the height of the Cold War. And so what we've done in this constant war um, against Black and brown people and Muslim people is to make us all less secure. And the thing that would give us security right now is turning these swords into plowshares and putting money into health and vaccination and COVID control. And that's just a political choice. And we could make that political choice. Mm. So... We just passed a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, which is a good package, right? It's a good package. Could be better, but it's good. We'll take it. That's right. Could be better, but it's good. And that is $1,900 billion. That's what $1.9 trillion is, right? It's $1,900 billion. And you're saying that it would cost $25 billion, right, of that to vaccinate the entire world. And yet we're choosing not to do that. What could possibly be on the other side of keeping us from doing that? What could possibly be racism? I think it's racism. I I mean, to me, the longer I do this, the more I think that if we didn't live in a world where we saw black and brown people as less deserving, less worthy of technology, less worthy of healthcare, we could do it. I mean, I just, I just can't see any other reason because even from a, from a purely profit motive, it doesn't make sense, right? You know, if the global economy right now, any of us sitting here at any minute are wearing clothing from four different countries in the world, right? We're all part of the global economy, whether we like it or not. There's no other way, other reason, except that we see people as other than human. And that was never more apparent since probably the civil rights movement, never more apparent than under the the Trump administration. But it is what we do globally. I mean, for many years, as the chief medical officer of Partners in Health, I've watched kids die of starvation in, you know, in the 21st century. Like, that's absurd. That doesn't need to happen. And we just don't have the political will. And if we had a, you know, level of hunger in France, as we see every day in Haiti, you better believe there would be massive aid going to them. And, and so I, you know, I've become more and more convinced that if we don't really try to deeply un- deconstruct racial capitalism, as many Black thinkers, African thinkers, Black feminist thinkers have asked us to do and have done, that we're really not going to get to the bottom of it. Mm. You know, when you raise this question of 
of the impact of racism, I'm reminded of the fact that, you know, racism, it is, it is deeply devastating to the people who are uh, the victims of it. But it also hurts the racist. And the, the, the challenge that we have is that we don't see the consequences of the fact that we are globally connected and our failure to, to look out for others is fundamentally a failure to look out for ourselves. And, you know, we talked about the variants at the very top, but this is a, a, a direct example of what can happen if we allow racism and, and greed to keep us from acting globally when we have the capacity and the power to do it. Because it just takes one variant that uh, can slip through uh, our vaccine-mediated immunity, and we are almost back to square one, right? And it's not to say that the, the whole pandemic would hit us again. There'd be some residual uh, immunity, certainly. But it is to say that it would vastly delay uh, our capacity to, to bring this pandemic to heal. Some argue that, um, you know, there are global approaches to taking this on. COVAX is one of them. Can you tell us about what COVAX is and uh, if it's enough? Yeah, no, it's not enough, but it's great. I mean, so when I, you know, referred to the AIDS pandemic, our last huge pandemic, there were other pandemics too, like Ebola, which affected more than one country. But, you know, when we, we look back, it took eight years to get the fruits of science to people who are suffering. And at that time, there were 8,000 people dying a day in the world from HIV. So it was a massive failure of imagination and delay. Um, what COVAX did, which is remarkable, was to say, even before we have a vaccine, let's make sure we have a platform for sharing that knowledge. So the COVAX facility was set up before the, the vaccines were even authorized by the FDA. And so that's remarkable. There was an equity plan from the beginning. The problem is that it relies on voluntary contributions from wealthy countries. So of course, under the Trump administration, they weren't gonna put anything into COVAX. Thankfully, the Biden administration has, and that's a game changer. But what we believe uh, at Partners in Health, but also there are many organizations and people supporting what's called the people's vaccine, is that just waiting for charity from the companies, the leftover doses, the small amount that's not getting paid for by the US, Canada, Europe, et cetera, that's not sufficient or fast enough, that we have to really make sure that these vaccines are mass manufactured in India or elsewhere, and that they can get out the door as quickly as possible. COVAX provides maybe, maybe about 20% of the coverage that we need. And so, and part of it is the, the production capacity of the, the groups that make these vaccines is just not large enough. So if they can't meet the global demand that we have, then we have to move that production to someone who can and transfer that technology and look at it as we're truly in this together. We're not just, well, we're in it together for our country and then the leftover, the spillover of the wave will go to you. And that's what's happening now. So I'm, I, I'm a fan of COVAX, but I agree with what Dr. Tedros said just this week that it's not nearly enough. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Dr. Mukherjee after this break. We're back with Dr. Joya Mukherjee. One of the um, insights, and we, we sort of talked a little bit about this early, um, of this pandemic is that 
there is a level of collective will that has to happen if you're going to be able to react to a major public health threat like this pandemic. And we just haven't had that. I mean, it's a little bit better now under this new administration, but we really haven't had that. We just saw a couple of weeks back that governors of you know states that have been captured by the right in this country uh, are prematurely opening up, not for the first time. They've already done this before. And uh, it, it didn't work out very well last time. And now we're doing it in the presence of these uh, extremely uh, threatening variants. And And other countries with far fewer resources have had the collective will. I mean, some of the countries that have done best when it comes to this pandemic have actually been West African countries that uh, have gone through either scares when it came to Ebola or the, the full pandemic. What does that tell us about the kind of political and or cultural resources that we lack? And you all at PIH have, have done a lot of work trying to take that on through, you know, contact tracing efforts, et cetera. What have you learned about whether or not it's possible to build that um, and how critical it is as an ingredient to effective and efficient public health? Yeah, well, so I came of age during the Reagan era. And I think, you know, and my grandparents were beneficiaries of the New Deal. And so I think what we've seen in the United States is 40 years of austerity being shoved down the throats of Americans as liberty, the conflation between democracy and capitalism, um, and the gutting of our social contracts as citizens of the United States. And so, you know, um, I I think both parties uh, have done too much to cut the social safety net away from Americans um, and to make it uh, seem weak to be getting help from the government and that that is somehow bad. And that, you know, is based on neoliberal capitalism, the idea that the market will fix all our problems. Well, I think Texas is the perfect example to show that it won't, that if you leave, you know, energy solely up to the private sector, people will live in the dark, literally. People's pipes will burst. People will not have heat. And we run healthcare like that. We run the school systems like that. And so the regular things that we would consider the part of public good, what brings us together as a society, that basic social contract is really disrupted in the United States compared to many other countries in the world. And of course, it's disrupted around the, along the lines of race. And so what we have to do, and this is why I am encouraged of, about the $1.9 trillion American Rescue uh, Plan, because I think we have to rebuild the sense that government is truly for the people, right? And not for the corporations, not for tax breaks, not for, you know, giving more and more money to the top 1%. And if we can convince Americans, again, like my grandparents were convinced during the New Deal, that government's going to help you then there's a different view of government. And I think where we see political will is governments have to do something for somebody. There is a demonstrative act that comes from governance, not just the, oh, we're going to stay out of your business, not tax you. That's not governance. And so I, I'm encouraged by the, the space that has been created for the Biden administration to, to govern 
Um, but we have to understand that that's rooted in voter activism, that's rooted in people getting to the polls. If we didn't have Ossoff and Warnock um, as you know, 49 and 50 in the Senate, it wouldn't happen. So I, I really think that we have been sold a bill of goods based on you know, a very narrowly construed economic ideology of neoliberalism that has abandoned poor in the United States and sown the seeds of division that then can be fed by, you know, our own racism, by, by, um, you know, bigoted policies. But the 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 economic sort of dismantling of governance, I think, has been happening over forty years. Yeah, I I, um, I certainly and profoundly agree. This governing approach has actually, unfortunately, been consensus uh, for a long period of time, and it it's required us to break that consensus, and yet. The biggest challenges that we have to doing that even now, right? The the bigger the 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 things that are not included in the one point nine trillion dollar package, are things that um that you know that consensus rooted not just among Republicans but also among some Democrats um, has interrupted our ability to work. And so I think there's a responsibility to appreciate the fact that politics shapes culture. Culture doesn't simply shape politics. And when we accept a certain level of truth to be a uh, an uncontested truth, right? That that poor people are poor as a function of non-deservingness and lack of hard work, rather than as a function of circumstance, or as a function of policies. I mean, you know, not only sort of passive circumstance, but the active policies that have impoverished people. Right. That's exactly right. Um, as a function of redistribution from the bottom upward, right? Then. Uh, we we miss the opportunity to act, and it hits us hardest, and it hits those same people, the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, hardest um, in moments of crisis like this, right? And and so I think that there is this moment where we have to take stock of the cultural and political resources we did not have, and why it meant that uh, we were five times as likely in this in this country to die of COVID nineteen as the global average. And rebuilding that has to be a major priority uh, of the post-COVID era. I'm I'm wondering if there's one lesson from your work abroad that you wish Americans could program, right? Could learn, and not just learn, but learn deeply. Um, we could program it into our DNA as a country. What would it be? I think that you know societies function best if people protect one another. You know, that the individualization, the every man for himself is just not a healthy way to live. It leads to more extraction, destruction of the environment. It leads to more COVID. Um, and that part of the functioning of our society, of our government, really has to be a level of interdependence. And that means that the, the most marginalized people need to be protected. And they need to have more protection. They need to have a disproportionate share of the resources. And I just think this is why I've been trying to say, what are the, what are the social theories? What are the things that we can look to to understand um, our place in this world? And I think it is you know, theories around mutuality, theories around listening to the voices of the marginalized and the oppressed. And those really come from, you know, Black feminism. And some of the things that would really say, let's center our world around caring for one another, um, not just amassing capital. And 
I think there are countries that are doing that. And, you know, if you look at countries, you know, like Rwanda, they've had an exquisite COVID response. Um, or Vietnam, where over the last 30 years, they've built healthcare that's relatively equitable, that's tax funded, and that is a form of wealth redistribution. And they've had very, very few COVID deaths. But there is a sense that people are, you can't just keep saying we're in this together, but not materially making it so. And I think that's, we don't have a society of being in it together, materially or sort of morally. Really appreciate you taking the time to share your experience and your perspective with us. And uh, that was Dr. Joya Mukherjee. She's the chief medical officer at Partners in Health, operating in 12 different countries around the world, uh, gratefully here in the U.S. as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Abdul. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. As Dr. Mukherjee and I discussed, it would cost us a mere $25 billion to vaccinate the whole world. To put it in perspective, $25 billion would have only added to 1.3% of the cost of the American Rescue Plan. Or, to put it another way, $25 billion is 126th of 2021's budget for the Department of Defense. As we've discussed, it remains critical that literally every single person in the world gets vaccinated. Any warm body that is susceptible to COVID is an opportunity for the virus to mutate, creating a variant that would slip our vaccines entirely. Will the U.S. rise to the challenge? Nevertheless, the American Rescue Plan is critically important for Americans all over the country struggling through this pandemic. To help us understand how it will offer more Americans health care, here's our DC diagnosis with KHN's Emery Hudeman. Tell us a little bit about how this, uh, this law now changes the experience of healthcare costs for the average American. So these changes to healthcare have been called by experts some of the most significant changes to the affordability of private insurance since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, with the caveat that they only last for two years. Now, the federal government is going to use subsidies heavily throughout this law to make private insurance more affordable for more Americans by giving them more money to pay their premiums. It'll be especially beneficial for the unemployed, um, as well as lower and middle income Americans who kind of fell through the gaps of the Affordable Care Act before and have been suffering in particular for not having that aid from the government in the time of, uh, of the pandemic when they're struggling to afford their premiums in many cases. Um, for the unemployed, this means that uh, they'll get some eligibility for, for subsidies on the exchange where they didn't have them before. They'll also get more benefits from the government in the form of um, the coverage of their COBRA premiums, actually. For unemployed workers, recently unemployed workers who uh, are on the co who use COBRA to get their uh, previous employer's health care plan and in the past would have probably paid up to their full premium on their own, a pretty pricey uh, bill in many cases, they'll get full coverage from the government through September to cover their subsidies. And then in the case of many lower and middle income Americans who may have gotten little to no help under the previous law, uh, they'll get some subsidy help to both uh, afford new, new plans and in some cases get lower deductible plans that'll make their coverage more affordable going forward. We know that um, millions of people either lost their health insurance entirely or found health insurance uh, unaffordable. What proportion of Americans who uh, either lost their health insurance or, you know, were priced out of their, their health insurance, what proportion will get, will be benefited uh, by this package? It's a little hard to say precisely, in part because we're still assessing how many people lost their uh, employer-sponsored insurance during the pandemic, and there are many different situations that apply to them. Generally speaking, estimates say that nearly 15 million people lost their employer-sponsored health care um, because of the pandemic. Um, 
But at the very least, we can't say this will make health insurance more affordable for millions of people. Um, the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, has estimated that there are about 15 million people who are uninsured right now who would be eligible to enroll in the exchanges, most of whom would be eligible for subsidies under this new law. Um, and the CBO has estimated that on the COBRA expansion alone, they actually, the CBO scored a, a, a less generous version of the bill than the one that passed. In the end, the one that passed will cover 100% of premiums for people using the COBRA plan. Before, the CBO had estimated on the less generous p plan that it was going to be about 2.2 million more people who would be eligible to enroll in the program. So we can expect with a more generous proposal, there might be more people who are enrolling as well. Um, there is one caveat, actually, which is that uh, actual enrollment may be limited by the fact that this is a temporary benefit. So not everyone is going to be motivated to change their insurance plan for a couple of years unless they're already having a lot of trouble affording insurance and know about the benefits now available. That was Emery Hudeman. Uh, she is a journalist with Kaiser Health News uh, for today's DC Diagnosis. In the next few weeks, we'll be doing an episode on the experience of getting vaccinated. I'll be sharing my own, but I really want to hear about yours. If you'd like to be featured, send us an email with a voice memo of your vaccine experience to americadissected at crooked.com. That's americadissected at crooked.com. Also, if you like our show, I want to invite you to subscribe to my newsletter, The Incision. I take on some of the biggest issues of this moment, like the seven policies the filibuster could kill, or why the royal family's racism is a lot bigger than Meghan Markle, or which vaccine you should take. Spoiler alert, it's the first one you can. Sign up at incision.substack.com. And don't forget to pick up your America Dissected swag today. Our Science Always Wins hats are back, along with our super soft sweats and tees, and we've got some kids' tees, crooked.com slash store. And we're always trying to make our show more accessible. So we've gone back and uploaded transcripts of all our episodes, available at crooked.com. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Uguiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, and me, Dr. Abdul Alsea, your host. Thanks for listening. <laughs>